Hi, welcome. This is Yolanda and I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And um, we're at the last stretch of chapter 29 and we're on page 280. The heading of this section is Old Friends. Thank you for joining me and uh, please bear with me. Sometimes I trip over my words. Enjoy. Old friends. I have herefore to related the manner in which at this visit to San Bernardino I met and conversed with David Seeley, an old time resident of Nauvoo, with whom I had known as a boy. At the bottom of the page and there's a star which says in a former reference this name appears as Edward. I had been told I could get some information from him, which, if it did not cure me of my faith in my father, it would at least jar me. I avowed myself of the opportunity to visit him, carrying with me a series of written questions, which I submitted to him for reply. After spending some hours with him, I left him with his promise to consider and answer my questions. I believe his answers are still in my desk or files as I have no recollection of ever destroying them but in the language of the apostle who had visited the disciples at Jerusalem they added nothing unto me at the close of my interview and the perusal of his statements the perusal of his statements I formed the same opinion as I had before viz that if my father had done the things charged against him the evidence offered was not in the nature nor had the characteristics of good proof and the statements of David Seeley were no exception to the rule, as I had found it elsewhere. On one of these days, I had a visit with Judge A. D. Boren and family, and was interested in hearing about his visit to Utah, his treatment there, and his life of mortification and disappointment since. His treatment at the hands of his former associates was indeed humiliating, as I have related heretofore, and I have never felt I could condemn him for his singular withdrawal from public notice and service. It could be accounted for under the scope of the proverb, a wounded spirit who can bear. Next heading, a patriotic celebration. Passing over many other events of this rather prolonged visit to San Bernardino, I may mention attending a widely called meeting of old settlers. The term old settlers included those who had been in California for a certain length of time. It was to celebrate the centennial of the adoption of the Constitution of the United States. I received from the chairman of the arrangements, George Lord, a special invitation to be present and was accorded a position upon the platform. Besides the presence of a large number of our own people, which made it very pleasurable for me, I recall one incident that was related to... was related by a man named Milton, if my memory is not at fault. He said that when he was a boy, living on his father's farm some few miles out of Philadelphia, he heard of a reception which was to be given for General Lafayette. Being eager to meet the noted soldier, he left home without breakfast and walked all the way in, only to be repulsed at the door by somebody in attendance. Warmly protesting against being turned away, he told them how he had come all that way and without breakfast in order to shake hands with his hero idol. The cloakway 
was overheard by the general who, inquiring, instructed that the lad be brought to him, where he shook hands, patted the boy on the head, and commended him for his patriotism and love of country. This turned the tide of favour. Someone gave him a hearty meal, and he returned home much elated over his success. The incident had been noted in the printed history of that notable reception, but it was a pleasure to me to hear this first-hand recital from one of the main actors in the little drama. Another item of the day which I remember was that the wife of Brother Henderson of San Bernardino, who was present, was a direct descendant of one of the Pilgrim Fathers, which one I do not now recall. I recall that at Plano and at Oakland, California, I had met Dr. Ethan Allen, a direct descendant of the Ethan Allen of Fort Ticonderoga fame, the one who said, in the name of God and the Continental Congress, etc. I may not be able to boast of other qualifications as a loyal citizen or citizen of the United States, but I can safely adver without excess of egotism that I have a strong and decided love for my country. I cannot hear or read about those who took part in the perilous times of the settling of America, from the landing of the pilgrims to the end of the war in 1812, without feeling the thrill of deep emotion and the willing of, welling of tears in my eyes. Thus it is a source of real pleasure for me to meet the descendants of any of these pi pioneer patriots, Sister Abby Horton of Independence, now in her 76th year, is a descendant of the notable Witherspoons and was born and raised almost in the shadow of Bunker Hill Monument. Next heading, some church members. On a ranch near San Bernardino lived John Allen, a member of the church from Australia. His family consists of son and widowed daughter, Sister Wixom the mother of Elder George Wixom, well known to the saints of California. On the first day of May, I walked out to their home and spent a pleasant day with them. It was for me a day of relaxation from care and anxiety of any sort, and I felt refreshed in mind and body. I found a brother Allen, however, suffering sorely from rheumatism. Brother Ridley was another one I knew out there who was afflicted with similar trouble. Both of these men died without mitigation of their suffering. Whatever may have been the beneficial qualities of the atmosphere of Southern California for other elements, it is quite certain that conditions in the San Bernardino Valley were not favourable for the eradication of this torture disease. The San Jacinto Valley was, at that time, noted, for a, noted as a paradise for those suffering from asthma. Leaving San Bernardino the middle of May, I went to Los Angeles and to my temporary home at Brother Fred Schnell's where I spent a week or more. The only thing I may note here is that Brother Schnell, like many others, had fallen a victim to the prevalent fever of speculation and had purchased rather heavily of real estate. Ignoring my suggestions to unload, he held on to the properties he had secured and it was but a short time until he and his family suffered a severe loss to the tune of several thousands of dollars. They had two daughters, Fanny and Mary, and a son, Frank. Fanny aspired to be a painter, and much had been sacrificed for her education and interest in the art. She had painted one picture, which she and others considered a charming piece, but had I been asked to judge of its excellence, I should have had to confess I was of the opinion that it would not bring her lasting celebrity. 
Its subject was to the rescue and it, it portrayed a horse running away with its rider, a friend following after on an equally swift animal in the act of throwing a lariat over the head of the runaway in order to prevent him from plunging over a precipice. The pursuing horseman was swinging his lasso aloft, but it was represented as having a small loop at the end, and its manipulator was holding the rope by its single strand. Such a manner of throwing a lasso could never be, never in reality accomplish the purpose designed nor check the horse. I advised the young painter to visit the park some day when it was advertised that cowboys would be there with their compete in the sport of throwing and tying cattle, assuring her that she would there learn more about the methods actually used. Brother Burton and I had once attended this sort of exhibition and saw many marvellous feats of cowboy skill performed. Animals would be driven out into the open and the cowboy signalled, would come dashing up to his steed, coiling his lasso as he came. The main length of the rope would be thus rolled into a coil of convenient size, one side of which would be held firmly, the end of the rope being tied to the pommel of his saddle. He would charge forward and throw the lasso round the neck of the animal, would check his horse at the same instant, which would brace itself firmly with its forefeet in order to receive the shock of the suddenly arrested plunge of the captive. The latter would then in a trice be thrown to the ground and its feet securely tied. These men could do this with almost incredible speed, one throwing and tying his animal in 18 seconds, another in 27 and so on. It was evident that Fanny did not take my advice for I afterwards saw the picture unaltered, the lasso still waving in the air with its loop at the end, pursued and pursuers all dashing wildly towards the precipice. While still quite young, I had tried to acquire and cultivate the habit of seeing what I looked at, and so it happens that often apparently trivial details of defect or excellence do not escape me. I remember seeing afterwards in a magazine a picture presenting much the same subject, but in it the lasso had already been thrown over the neck of the runaway horse. However, the artist had erred in placing the lariat under the bridle reins, plainly an impossible and ridiculous relation and a silly mistake to have made <laughs> sorry this does make me laugh these things that he's pointing out um next paragraph fanny was the older of the sisters she married a prince and man of literary affairs he did not belong to the church and she passed out of my experience Mary remained with her mother and brother after the death of her father, which occurred some time after my visit. He left his family considerably encumbered with the results of his unfortunate ventures in land speculation. Perhaps I have never had much business wisdom, but I have enough common sense to know that the bottom of that boom would fall out beyond possibility of recovery and that Brother Snell, like many others, would be crushed in the crash. When travelling from Santa Ana with Brother Burton toward Los Angeles, we came through a little town called Laverne. It had a great number of streets and lots laid out and marked, some few streets graded and a hotel of some dimensions erected, which was about all there was to be seen. North of this place, a mile or two, we saw in the road a two-storey house on wheels, which a man was hauling to some location or other. Hailing him as we passed, we jocularly asked if he were hunting a town site in which to put his house. He answered rather gruffly that it looked that way. 
Then I told him we had just passed one a little way back in which there was plenty of room. This remark seemed to strike his sense of humour as it did ours, and we all had a hearty laugh and passed by. Next heading, two points further north. I preached for the saints in Los Angeles several times during my short stay, and towards the last of May bade them goodbye, passing from Southern California by train two points further north. As we began to cross the desert, I thought I would stand outside during that passage, as it seemed but a few miles. I took a position on the steps of the car, holding to the rails on either side, and I enjoyed the novel charm of the desert plain. The air was clear and pure, the breeze blowing the engine smoke away from the train. In delight, I contemplated the immensity of space overhead and the wide desolation of the alkali plains spread below. How long I stood, I do not know. When the train came to a stop at a little station, just a mere shelter and a water tank, I asked the brakesman how far we had come, and he answered, 45 miles. Looking ahead, I saw that the distance forward seemed still fully equal to that behind, and so I changed my mind about crossing the waist on foot, and went in and sat down in a comfortable seat, asking myself if I were foolish enough to walk all that way when I could ride. It was a relief from the mono monotony when we finally entered the mountain passes and traversed the more rugged and circuitous routes through the everlasting hills. We reached San Francisco at noon the next day and were soon at the hospital and comfortable residence of Sister M. E. Andrews, which became a temporary home for weary missionaries. The Andrews were English people. I have written of them before. The husband had made something of a fortune in malting for brewing and in preparing oats for breakfast food. Their home had been mine on former visits to the city. I think her husband had died before this visit, though the two daughters and a son were with her. The next day I renewed my acquaintances with the Lincolns and Wilbers and visited a family from Santa Anna by the name of Knight. The man had been in Nauvoo when a boy and was, I think, a son of Joseph Knight, whom I remember well. Sister Knight was a strong character and an active church worker, while her husband was easygoing, a keen observer, fond of reading, quite far in judgment, but of that general class which contributes no special benefit to the world, either in ideas or achievements. His placid nature did not make him immune from disease, however, and between this visit and the next one I made to the coast, he had paid the penalty of his human birth and life and had gone to his reward, leaving his life wife with three daughters. When I passed through San Francisco on my way home from Honolulu in 1907, I visited the Oakland branch, then under the administration of Elder J.M. Terry. At his request, I preached a discourse upon the sanctity of the marriage bond, in which effort I spoke of the folly and disaster of divorce and discourse at some length upon the causes, many avoidable, which led to such separation. Sister Knight and two of her daughters were present, and I learned later that one of the daughters had separated from her husband and was contemplating a divorce, while the other was also unhappy in her marriage relations, both seemingly in danger of wrecking their hopes and faith. I fancied I understood one reason why Brother Terry had wished me to speak upon that topic that evening. 
To go back to my visit of 1889, one Sunday I preached in Oakland and then went to call on the elder Hiram P. Brown. I found him in a very bad state of health, a condition which resulted in his death not long afterward. He had not long, he had not become fully reconciled to the brethren with whom he had had difficulties, as I understood, when he had suffered a stroke of paralysis which affected the motion of arms and legs and also greatly impaired his speech, rendering him quite unfit for business. His children had become estranged from him, and I saw and heard but little of them. However, his wife was faithful to him and ministered patiently to him in his affliction on, until his death. Um, I'm going to comment here where he uh, disagrees with divorce. Um... <laughs> If people are unhappy, they shouldn't stick together unless it is resolvable. But quite often, um, it seems the case that men dominated the women and the women were objects of intimacy and used as maids and servants. And that's that's my opinion anyway. Um, having uh, married twice and divorced twice, um, I've not been happy with um, the way men have... Um, treated me I just felt like I'm a sex object and they just want to uh, look at me that way so anyway that's um <laughs> so I don't think that God wants anybody to be in an unhappy relationship um yeah so where he says here that about divorce it's got to work for both it's got to work out both ways both people have got to be happy and work out a marriage together and um not one just a servant to the other um anyway back to uh reading in the middle of the week i went again to oakland this time visiting my old schoolmate albert hawes meeting his brother alpheus dining at f w willis wiley's um supping at c nethercott's and renewing many old acquaintances one day i visited a family named stuart going there in company with sister Frankie Lincoln, sister of our brother George Lincoln. I have a very pleasant memory of this young woman because of one of my visits to her mother's home. She played and sung for me. I was ever fond of music, though not understanding the classical sort very well. Frankie had a very pleasing voice, fairly well trained, and both her playing and singing were excellent. One song she sang has been has often recurred to me and has been a decided favourite. Its refrain is strikingly suggestive. Then don't be sorrowful, darling, oh don't be sorrowful, pray, for taking the year together, my dear, there isn't more night than day. I may add that I have understood that Sister Frankie Lincoln later married pleasantly and wisely, though to a man who was not a member of the church and has been happy and contented in her family relation. Visiting with the saints on Sunday, speaking in their hall then on Howard Street, I think, I heard the chiming of bells nearby, the first time I ever heard tunes played upon them. Lunching with a group of our members, I met again at Sister Nightingale, whom I had first met at Hellsburg or Windsor upon the occasion of my first trip to Northern Carolina sorry northern california tripping over my words again 
On June 3rd, I was at the house of William Potter. He was one with whom Elder E.C. Briggs had differences when the latter was missionary to the coast. With several others in conference assembled, Brother Potter was disciplined by the Elder, but the incident had not destroyed his faith in the Gospel teachings. While there, he and Brother J. Nightingale assisted me in administering to Sisters Greenwood, Nightingale and Potter, Brother Goodwin and a daughter of Brother White. After supper, I visited the Lincolns before returning home. When travelling with Brother D.S. Mills in 1876, we visited Brother Isaac Russell at Daneville, some eight or ten miles south of Mount Diablo. Now on June the 4th, I had a visit with Sister Russell, meeting her at her request at the Milton House in Frisco, where she was temporarily established. She told me the story of the fortunes of the family since my first visit, and I tried to advise and encourage her as best I could. She was one of those encountered in my ministerial services in the land of sun and flowers. And flowers, sorry, I've tripped over my words again. In the land of sun and flowers who contributed generously of financial means to meet my current missionary expenses. There were others also thoughtful in this regard. It is difficult and immaterial as well as to mention by name all the kind saints of San Francisco, Oakland, Irvington and other nearby points with whom I visited and whose table hospitality I shared. May their uniform kindness to me be generously rewarded. I suffered acutely much of the time during this visit with facial neuralgia and received much kindly sympathy and ministerial ministration for which I am truly grateful. Next heading, Cousin Josephine. On the 11th of June, I called on my cousin, Ina D. Colbreth, then acting librarian of the Oakland City Library, which position she had filled for several years. She was the daughter of my uncle Don Carlos Smith. At his death in 1841, this uncle had left a widow, Agnes, whose maiden name was Colbreth, and two daughters, Agnes and Josephine Donner. Aunt Agnes married again to Colonel William Pickett, one of the new citizens who moved into Nauvoo after the exodus of the church from Illinois. Later they went west to the Pacific coast, where he became dissipated finally going up into Oregon on an exhibition there to die, leaving his wife with an additional burden of two sons. The daughter Agnes married and had a child, which she did not long survive. One of the young brothers, I understood, became addicted to drink and, as I remember, did not live long. The mother also soon died and the care of the other boy devolved upon Josephine or Inez, as she was called in the family. I found her alone, and after a little chat, she invited me to take dinner with her at her home. She had nurtured a strong aversion to being identified with the Mormons on the Smith family, under which influence she had discarded her surname and taken that of her mother's family, Colbreth, by which she was recognised and known. She had attained considerable celebrity as a poet, having written, among other things, a small volume called Peepo Day and Other Poems which was followed by Songs of the Golden Gate and perhaps others of a similar character. They had some literary mem uh, merit, perhaps, but they were sentimental and without much extraordinary value as to thought or colour, to my notion. However, she had been acclaimed at one time as Poet Laureate of California. 
She had been a friend of Brett Harty, the writer, and at his solicitation had become a sort of chaperone to his daughter, a girl with half-Indian blood, it was said, whom she very carefully instructed and trained so far as her influence could go. As the child approached womanhood, however, she became restive and finally escaped from control and was rather wild and erratic. Whatever finally became of her, I do not remember, but I did hear that my cousin was greatly grieved and chagrined over her apparent failure in keeping the child from going astray. When I first learned that Inez had written a book of poems, I wrote and asked her to send me a copy, offering to pay for it at regular price. She very promptly complied with my request, accompanying the book with a cordial letter in which she commended the efforts my brothers and I were making to clear the name of our father and the church from the ignominy of that fallen upon them because of the false theories and worst practices instituted under the reign of Brigham Young. But she also begged me that I, if I noticed her book at all or herself in any public way, to please avoid connecting her with the Smith family. To this letter I answered that her wishes would be granted, but I expressed my wonderment at such request, since being a poet and therefore likely a hero worshipper, I should have imagined she would have been quick and eager to champion the cause of her family, and that instead of ostracising us as her relatives, she should have been glad and proud to recognise and claim us inasmuch as the position we had assumed and the troops we presented were calculated to establish the integrity of those who had lived and died for them, her father and her brother, his brothers included. I expressed the sentiment that we were in a measure modern heroes, and as such might have appealed to the esteem and imagination of the poet, even if we had failed to win the gratitude and affection of the cousin. She wrote me then, acknowledging her error ungraciously, begging my pardon for what must have seemed both rude and ungrateful, which pardon, of course, I was glad to extend. I had another claim upon the attention... She wrote me then, acknowledging her error and graciously begging my pardon. So I've just read that again, haven't I? <laughs> I had another claim upon the attention of this lady, which, without taking credit to myself, I believed merited her thanks at least. During her father's lifetime, some admirer of the Smith brothers had presented them with heavy gold rings. Joseph Hiram and Don Carlos at least, each receiving one. In some manner, her father's ring at his death was placed in my mother's care. She kept it until my brother Frederick was about grown, and then had confided it to him. At his death it came into my hands. His widow tried to claim it, but knowing whom it had been originally, I determined to deliver it some time to the only surviving child of that uncle Don Carlos, should I ever have the opportunity. Consequently, once when my brother Alexander went through to the coast, I sent the ring by him to this cousin Enos. She was apparently quite gratified to have this keepsake from her father and warmly expressed her appreciation of our recognition of her and of her right to possess it. 
Hence, upon the occasion of this visit, in 1889, she received me kindly, and at our dinner together gave me much of the information about her mother's life in the West and Northwest, which I have set forth, as well as some details of her association with her dissipated stepfather, the burden she carried with her half-brothers and her sister's unfortunate marriage. I called upon this cousin again as I passed through San Francisco on my way home from Honolulu in 1907, an account of which visit will appear hereafter. Little of material interest outside of the usual round of sermons, visits and other duties occupied my attention between the day of my visit with my cousin and June the 25th when I left San Francisco to meet Elder R. J. Anthony at Salt Lake City and with him travelled through the northern portion of the Utah mission. Next heading, again in Utah. At Salt Lake City I was met by Brother Anthony and Brother Joseph Wilson of whom home I became, of whose home I became an inmate. The next day I visited my cousins John and Samuel Smith and others, among them my cousin Sarah, wife of Charles Sumner Nichols, often styled C. Sum Nichols. She was the daughter of my aunt and uncle Millican. He was a publisher. At his solicitation I contributed several articles on polygamy to the Times, all of them more or less argumentative, based upon facts within my knowledge. In visiting the office of the Salt Lake Tribune, in company with Brother Anthony, I was solicited by the senior editor, Goodwin, to write for the Tribune an account of my travels in the mission. I declined for the reason that I could not agree with the attitude of the editors, Goodwin and Nelson, who had little sympathy with the church movement with which I had identified. They were making a fight against the church in all its branches upon the hypothesis that there was no good in Mormonism, similar, I suppose, to the public opinion in the Saviour's day, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? We had rather a sharp colloquy over the matter, Colonel Nelson and myself, but I was firmly resolved not to submit myself to the unjust criticism and arraignment as an enemy which such a procedure would be sure to invoke upon me from the dominant people of the city and territory. So I simply assured the editors that I found much good in the faith of my father had left and that I expected to continue to cherish that good even the while I tested, even the while I tried to clear away the odium and blame which had unjustly attached to my father's memory. I'm writing as I am after the vicissitudes of the many years intervening between then and now. I feel that with my comrades in the task I have so far accomplished that, pers that purpose, that the name of our church is honourable in the land. I began my ministerial labours in Salt Lake on Sunday, June 30th, preaching twice from the chapel near the home of Brother Barrows. The next day I performed the marriage ceremony which united two of my good friends, Brother Joseph Wilson and Sister Alice C. Robinson, about both of whom I have already written. The couple started happily on a honeymoon trip to the east and I removed from Brother Wilson's home to that of Brother Ethan Barrows. On the 4th of July, Brother Anthony and I attended a celebration in Liberty Park where I noticed but few, if any, of the Utah church members present. It was a very 
hot, very dry and very dusty day and we returned home footsore and weary but satisfied with having demonstrated our patriotism. These days seem marked only by my usual activities as missionary and by visits in the homes of relatives and members of the church. Soon Brother Anthony made preparations for a trip south and we left for Lehigh where I was lodged at the home of Sister David Cook, a widow. Through the kindness of Bishop Cutler, we held services in the local church building. One happy instance of a break in the usual intolerance shown us by the authorities of the dominant church. As a rule, the leaders were not like my cousin John Henry Smith, who took occasion in some of his public utterances from the pulpit to assure his hearers that I was a gentleman, that they would not find me abusive and might safely and without apprehension go and hear what I had to say. From Lehigh we went to Pleasant Grove, where, as on former visits, I found a home with the family of Sister Pamela Sterrett, and most cordially made welcome. The evening of the 11th I spoke in the opera house there with a fair attendance, and on the next night in a hall, the use of which had been obtained from the local bishop, Brown, I think. Next heading, Dr Isaacson. Upon this occasion, there was present the Dr. Isaacson from America's, from American Fork, whom I may have mentioned elsewhere. He was a foreigner, presumably German, and quite a learned gentleman, had been baptised some little time before into the Utah church, the authorities of which had taken him into considerable favour. He was engaged in translating the Book of Mormon into his native language for the use of the ministry. He had made his position in the church further secured by marrying one of the most attractive young women of the neighbourhood and was pleasantly located and favourably regarded in his hometown. He paid very close attention to what I said and, at the close of my discourse, asked permission to reply to my effort. This was granted. He was all enthusiasm fire, boldly challenging the positions assumed by the reorganised church, and ended with a rather dramatic invitation to me to return to the fold to engage in the work of your father and to become an active advocate of their theories. Dr Isaacson invited me to visit him at American Fork for the purpose of conversation and better acquaintance. This invitation I accepted later in the year, when we returned from the northern portion of our mission. The weather was cool and I was driven over to American Fork by brother Hosea B. Sterrett, a son of Sister Pamela, and greatly enjoyed the trip. There was an incident in connection with starting upon this visit, which was strictly in keeping with the spirit of the work I was doing, though it may appear chimerical or fanciful to some of my readers. In getting ready, I took some books out of my pocket and left them in my room. As I stepped out of the front door and started down the steps, a voice spoke to me audibly and plainly, put your book of covenants in your pocket. I stopped and pondered a moment, but thinking that surely I would have no use for it, I felt inclined to pass the warning by saying mentally, why should I bother to take the book with me? I do not expect to preach. But the command by the voice was repeated, put your doctrine and covenants in your pocket. Hearkening, I returned into the house, put, got the book and placed it in my pocket, mentally resolving to see the thing through. Arriving at Dr. Isaacson's in a fair time before dinner, we engaged in conversation of a somewhat desultory character. 
during which I learned much of him and his native country. He introduced me to his wife, a pleasant, handsome woman, apparently bright and intelligent, and as I was told, of, of an excellent and cultured family. The dinner was served in due time, was abundant in quantity, excellent in quality, and much enjoyed by me at least. After the meal, the doctor at once broached the subject of the reorganisation and wished to proceed to a discussion of our differences. At first I demurred, saying I had come down for just a friendly visit and it might perhaps be more conducive to good feeling and mutual regard for us to talk of things we had in common rather than things about which we differed. But he would not hear of this. Um saying that he had invited me on purpose to have it out with me, that he thought he could convince me that I was in error, that he wanted to do this and to win me back to the faith. I saw I was in for it at all events, and I immediately recognised the intelligence of the command I had received about bringing my Book of Covenants along with me. I told the doctor to get his German Book of Mormon and Book of Covenants, and we would begin I knew that these additions were like the ones the reorganised church used. It did so and the conflict was on. Brother Sterrett had gone to see some of his friends in the village and would call for me sometime in the afternoon and so we had plenty of time before us. I took the initiative and set forth and advocated our positions one by one on the main topics of differences, especially plural marriage and polygamy. I gave him many citations from the Bible, Book of Mormon, Adoption and Covenants, specifying chapter and verse, all of which he hunted up diligently, read and carefully noted. We continued our conversation until about the middle of the afternoon, when an elder by the name of Barrett came in. He sat by and listened to us in silence for a time, and then ventured to put in his view. To this, Dr. Isaacson demurred upon the plea that it was unfair for both of them to be against me alone, but I suggested with a smile, you may as well let the elder into the controversy, as you will certainly need him, and I do not object. So the three-cornered conversation continued until the doctor grew uneasy. He finally admitted that so far as the books were concerned, the argument was in my favour, for they strongly corroborated the claims made by the reorganisation. At apparent climate, an apparent climax was reached when Elder Barrett said distinctly that the doctrine of polygamy was right, that the trouble was they did not practice it right, I asked. To whom may we look then for a proper demonstration of the doctrine if you people who openly advocated it are not practicing it right? You have been practicing plural marriage in Utah for 40 years, and what is the result? Will you please tell me what and where are the advantages gained? It was a rather close and puzzling question. Elder Barrett had been pro prosecuted before the courts for his part in polygamous transactions and had suffered a severe penalty. He seemed to be uncomfortable and under quite a strain as I propounded the question and the perspiration stood on his face in beads. Dr. Isaacson was also apparently greatly disturbed in mind, and I could see that his wife, who had heard much of the conversation, shared his perturbance or perturbation. At last the doctor grew silent, though Elder Barrett and I continued our discussion a little longer. He did not recede from the position he had taken, however, when he admitted that polygamy had not been practised right. 
I was reminded of a similar admission once made in my presence by George Q. Cannon when in discussing the theory that patriarchal blessings and family growth were closely allied to the doctrine of plural marriage. He used language of the same import. Finally, I closed the books and suggested to my host and his friend that we should cease our argument, and they agreed. I again partook of food with the doctor after Elder Barrett's departure. In leaving, he assured me I had very ably and, as he thought, conclusively defended the position of the reorganised church and promised to give the subjects further close and careful investigation. As I have said, he had been accorded the confidence of the leading men of the Utah church, although my cousin John Smith told me that he at least had taken no stock in the doctor, as he expressed it, and was inclined to believe him an imposter. The church authorities had fostered him, furnished him a house, was paying a liberal stipend for his support, and directing and sustaining him in his labours of translation. Whether he did investigate our position further or not, I do not know, and can only guess at the result of our conversation. I learned from credible authority that not long after my visit, the man suddenly came up missing, and that after his disappearance, it was discovered that from several houses where he had visited, articles of virtue and value were also missing. So far as I have learned, he never returned to his family, thus abandoned when he left for regions unknown. He once wrote me a letter in which he promised to visit me at Lamona. This visit I anticipate anticipated for some time but it never materialized so far as my recollection goes no knowledge has since come to me of the whereabouts or doings of dr ed isaacson he was indeed a scholar of extraordinary ability and it may be possible that had he not challenged me and opened up to the opened up the controversy which resulted in my presenting him with the details of our position on the plural marriage question and the scriptural proofs thereof he might yet be in association with the utah church and a useful man therein be that as it may he must stand upon the record he has made i fear the record he left at american fort was not offset to say the least by that of another able man once admitted to fellowship in utah elder edward tullidge who wrote life of joseph the prophet I have mentioned him heretofore in this book. Both these men were failures, one through a love for the, and overindulgence in intoxicants, and the other, doubtless, through some inherent immoral tendencies, though in both cases these weaknesses were mingled with unquestioned dispositions for good. One outcome of my visit to Dr. Isaacson was that my belief in the watchfulness of the spirit of the master was strengthened. That spirit which has said to me, acting as a servant of the cause, put your book of covenants in your pocket. Next heading, Joseph Kingsbury. And this is the last section before chapter 30. At one of my services, Joseph Kingsbury was present. He was the witness in the temple lock case ostensibly called in behalf of the Church of Christ, who testified that at the request of his father-in-law, Bishop Nathan K. Whitney, he had copied the so-called revelation on plural marriage. He stated he did this copying in longhand in about an hour's time, 
as found in the Utah edition of the Covenants, published in 1876, that revelation is about equal in length to nine pages of our church history volumes. It might be possible for an expert at the typewriter to copy it in the time stated and exercise due care, as he claims he did, in comparing it with the original in order to get it exactly like it. But it is quite certain that no longhand writer could do it in that time. I had no conversation with Elder Kingsbury, but I was glad he was present. Present, sorry, I said again. He was present at my service and heard what I had to say concerning conditions and theories then prevailing in Utah. The end of chapter twenty-nine. Thank you for listening.